Christ is our solid rock. He is that anchor that holds in the midst of the storm. And there's no doubt many of you are here this morning. And you're going through storms in your life. There is, there's trial, there's hardship, there's tribulation. Well, the good news is, is that our responsibility in the midst of trial and tribulation is to be perfect. Doesn't that set all of you at ease? If you have your Bibles this morning, open up to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 17 through 20. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a difficulty in when we're reading the gospel, studying the gospel, studying the word of God. Finding that, that balance between that which is responsible by man and that which is responsible by God. We read in Scripture that, that says that God is sovereign and God is completely 100% in control of all things. That not a raindrop falls to the ground without the foreordination of God. Not a, tree falls off of a, uh, not a leaf falls off of a tree and hits the ground without God's sovereign foreordination. But then we see other places in Scripture where it says... Choose you this day whom you will serve. Where we see repent and believe, where, where, where there's clear direction and clear distinction to human responsibility. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17, 17 through 20. We read, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus completely fulfilled the law and righteousness. God, we thank you that He fulfilled righteousness that we might receive mercy. Lord, may You speak to our hearts here this morning and may we hear from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue to study the book of Matthew, we are reminded and we remember that the book of Matthew was written by... All right, let's try that one more time. The book of Matthew was written by Matthew and the book of Matthew was written to... The Jews. And it was written to present Jesus as the son of David. And so we see that Jesus is talking and we see the Sermon on the Mount and, and we've, we've looked at the past few weeks, we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we understand that the Sermon on the Mount is divided up into, into two very distinct sections. The first section is, is who we are to be. The second section, chapters uh, 5, verses 1 through 20, is, is who we are to be, that blessed are, the, um, uh, blessed are those who 
are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are uh, those who are persecuted. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And here we will see that, that, that we are to be righteousness. And then we see the rest of Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is to because who we are, what we are to do. How our actions are to reflect who we are. It is very important as Christians, as we understand the Sermon on the Mount, first and foremost, that the Sermon on the Mount was written primarily not to the multitudes that were gathered there, but the Sermon on the Mount was written primarily to His disciples. If you go back, let's go back and let me remind you of this. Let us see this in the text. Don't just take this from the preacher's mouth. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And when He saw the multitudes, He went up on the mountain... And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Who is them? His disciples. Now, were there multitudes that gathered there? Absolutely. But the primary recipient of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount was for the disciples. So, Jesus is teaching his disciples. And as he's teaching his disciples, he is teaching them, first and foremost, who they are to be which will then translate into what they are to do. We can't confuse those. What we do does not determine who we are, but who we are determines what we do. What we say and what we do is a reflection of who we are. Jesus said it like this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It is who we are that bubbles up out of us in the midst of trial, hardship, and, and difficulty. You want, to know who's, you want to know someone's character? Watch how they respond. Watch how they react in the midst of hardship. Watch how they react as they are, as they are squeezed by life. What they are comes out. When you take and you squeeze an orange, what do you get? Orange juice. When you take and you squeeze a lemon, what do you get? Lemon juice. Whenever you take and you, you squeeze Christians, what you ought to get is Christ. But all too often, what you get is not. It's important that we understand that, that we must first address who we are before we, do, before we address what we will be. We see this in Matthew chapter 28 as Jesus gives the Great Commission. He says, and all authority has been given unto me. As we begin in Matthew chapter 28, he says, all authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go, and I want us to look at the progression. Go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even to the age. The very first thing that takes place is not teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. The very first thing that takes place is Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me, therefore go make disciples. They must first be disciples. Then they're baptized into the body of Christ. Then there is this teaching to observe all that I have commanded. There is that process of sanctification that takes place after we've been justified, after we've been born again. We can't teach them to be right until, they have, until there has been a heart change. Jeremiah said it like this. He says, I will, I will, remove, I will give them a new covenant, not a, not a covenant like the old covenant, but a covenant that will result in the change of heart. Ezekiel says it like this. I will take their heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. The heart must change before the actions change. Go to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we see this demonstrated in the conversion of Zacchaeus. 
<clears throat> we all know the story Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? And so Zacchaeus, whether he was a little person, whether he was a dwarf or whether he was just short, we don't know. But he climbed up in a sycamore tree because Jesus was coming by. And notice what it says in verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw. He saw him. He said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Zacchaeus, first and foremost, received the Lord Jesus. Jesus called him. There was a, there was a, a call to salvation. There was a call to humility. Zacchaeus, come down. Zacchaeus humbled himself, received the Lord Jesus, and then look what takes place after that. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said, the Lord said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anything, I will give back four times as much. The action followed a heart change. It was only after the humility, only after the change of heart, only after the recipient of salvation, only after receiving salvation, that the life was changed, that the behavior was changed. Failure to understand this key principle results in legalism. We want people to change their behavior before they ever change their heart. We want people to stop doing X, Y, and Z before they ever come to a realization of their need for Jesus and cry out to a Savior. Until there is a heart change, the behavior cannot change. That's legalism. That's the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. will do what's right and therefore garner favor by God. Salvation is when God changes our heart and then a life of obedience flows out of love, not out of obligation, out of worship, not out of have to. Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 5, and he begins to talk about the law in a way that they had never heard before. Today, I want you to realize the result of today's message you must be righteous you must be righteous Jesus begins to talk about the law in a way that is distinctly different from anything they've ever heard look at what he says in verse 17 he says do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not a smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from this law until all has accomplished Jesus begins to talk about the law in a way that is completely different than anything that they had ever heard of now I want to back up and I want you to understand what is meant by the law in here in Matthew chapter 5 there are three very distinct laws that we see in the Old Testament the first law is the ceremonial law this is the law that God gave to Moses, that God gave to Aaron, that God gave to the Levites, and how they were to interact with him, and how they were to worship him, and how they were to go about the, the 
operation of the tabernacle, of the temple, how many times they had to wash their hands, how many times, you know, how they had to deal with the sacrifices, how they had to deal with, with the offerings unto the Lord, how, how the table of showbread and, and the mercy seat and the uh, golden lampstand, there was all, there was a tremendous amount of law that dealt with the ceremonial dealings in the temple and in the tabernacle. This is not the law that's talked about here in Matthew chapter 5. Because when Jesus shed his red rich royal blood on the cross, when God looked at the travail of his soul and was satisfied, when Jesus said it is finished and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the ceremonial law was abolished. There was no longer need for an, for an intercessor through a priest. There was no longer need for the blood of goats and bulls and lambs. There was no longer a need for a mercy seat, for Jesus had abolished the ceremonial law. We no longer had to enter, we no longer had to bring our, our confession to a priest and have the priest go before God. We now had an intercessor through Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29, whenever John saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes and takes away the sin of the world. Jesus became our ceremonial law. The ceremonial law with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was completely abolished. Then there was the civil law. This is the law that we read predominantly at the end of the book of Exodus where God gave Moses some instruction on how to handle people, how to handle property, how to handle disputes between this Israelite and that Israelite. I want to read to you something. Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. If you've ever been through a, a reading, a, a, a reading plan where, where you're going to read the whole Bible in the year, when you get to the end of Exodus, you're like, oh my gosh, is this thing ever going to end? And you start reading about oxes and you start reading about, about slaves and you start reading about uh, this person who did this to that person and that person who did this to this person. And you're thinking, what does this have to do with anything? Exodus chapter, this is an example of civil law. Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. If the ox gores a male or female slave and the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. And everybody said, well, it's a good thing I don't have an ox. If you keep reading, and this is just for, for entertainment value, uh, I want you to understand the, the nature of the civil law. If a man opens up a pit and digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox falls and a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his. If, the man, if one man's ox hurts another man so that it dies, he shall, he shall sell the live ox and divide his price equally, and they shall divide the dead ox. Or if it is known that the ox was previously in the habit of goring, and yet its owner has not confined it, he shall surely pay the ox for the other ox, the dead animal shall become his. And so we see all of these, all of these laws about oxen and about donkeys and about, about what you're to do, and, and apparently there were lots of people who got gored by oxes back then. I, I don't know. This is the civil law. This is not the law that Jesus was talking about. What was Jesus talking about? The moral law. There's ceremonial law that was completely abolished with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's the civil law. There's the moral law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make for yourself a graven image. 
shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Now remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. We read the Ten Commandments. That is the moral law. It applies to all people for all time, in all circumstances, in all situations. There was a study recently done over the past 15 years by the University of Michigan. And as the University of Michigan studied, the, they, they, it was a sociological, anthropological study. They were trying to, to look into these indigenous people groups that had no no connection with the Western world, no connection with, with the Judeo-Christian society. And what they were trying, what they were setting out to, to prove that was, that was that the moral law that we live by was unique to a Judeo-Christian society, to a Judeo-Christian worldview. What they found was quite surprising. That whether you were in Asia, Africa, South America, North America, Europe, that whatever tribe, whatever indigenous people group you went to, that there were some commonalities in all of their legal systems. All of them, without exception, said that it's wrong to take innocent blood. Said that it's wrong to take that which doesn't belong to you. Said that it's wrong to bear false witness. Why? Because the law of God is written on our hearts. And the moral law is that which applies for all time, for all people, and in all circumstances. And that is the law that Jesus was talking about whenever he said, Don't think that I came to abolish the law. For I did not. But I came that the law might be fulfilled through me. And so, a couple things I want us to notice about the law. Look at verse 17, the law is permanent. Verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The law will be forever and ever. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The law is permanent. Verse 19, the law's pertinent. For I say to you, whoever annuls the one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. The law is pertinent. It's applicable today. It does not matter whether you are, whether you are 4 or whether you are 54 or whether you are 94. The law applies today. It is pertinent. It is pure. It is right. The law is permanent. The law is pertinent. And the law is pure. The only problem when you read this passage is when you get to verse 20. Look at verse 20. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. For the Israelites, that posed a problem. Because 
even the disciples, they looked at the scribes and the Pharisees and they said, look, we're, we're good old boys, but we're not like them. They keep the letter of the law so completely that they have even written a secondary law to supplement the, the primary law to keep them as far away from transgressing the primary law that is humanly possible. What the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the, those religious leaders, what they had done is they had taken the moral law, they had taken God's Ten Commandments that says, Thou shalt remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And they said, Okay, what does that mean? Well, we're not really sure, but we want to make sure that we don't transgress that law, so let's make all of these secondary laws that will ensure that we don't come anywhere close to transgressing Remembering the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so they had entire laws that said you can only travel X amount of miles on the Sabbath day. That said if if we are to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that means we can't work on the Sabbath day. What does it mean to work? Well, you know, let's set up a, a system of laws that defines what work is. So that so that we can make sure that we don't transgress remembering the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We will set up all these secondary laws so that, so that we can make sure that we don't transgress that. What does it mean to, to not take the Lord's name in vain? What does it mean to, to not have any graven images? And they had set up all of these secondary laws that, that they kept to the very letter of the law. So much so that externally, they appeared perfect, blameless. And so the world looked at them, the multitude looked at them, the disciples looked at them, and they heard Jesus say, unless your righteousness surpasses, not is as good as, but surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And they look at each other and they say, there's no way. Like when I started out this morning and I said, you must be righteous. You looked at me and you said, there's no way. I know my heart. I know what goes through my mind. Even while I'm supposed to be listening to the word of God, I know the things that are coming into my mind and going out. I know my heart. And if we're honest with ourselves, by show of hands, how many of us have ever told a lie? And if we're not raising our hands, then we know we're a liar now, so you can go ahead and raise your hand. And, and if we have told one lie, what does that make us? A liar. By definition, if we lie, we are liars. How many of you have ever stolen something, taken something that, that, that doesn't belong to you, even if it's small? Well, come on, you already told me you're a liar. We understand that, that we're liars, we're thieves. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, if you look at a woman to lust after her, or if you look at a man to lust after him, you've committed adultery in your heart. So if I'm honest with myself, I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer. It says if you hate, have hatred in your heart for your brother, you've committed murder. So I'm a liar, a thief an adulterer, and a murderer. 
And we can, we can go on and on and we can, we can begin to unpack this moral law that Jesus is saying. And he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And, and if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. And if you're not entering the kingdom of heaven, the only, the only possible other option for you is that you're entering into a place that the Bible calls hell. What encouraging words from Jesus. The only problem is the scribes and the Pharisees developed a secondary law to keep them as far away from breaking the law, but it only dealt with the outside. They said, don't do this, don't do that. Do this, do that. Make sure that, that you take care of the widows. Make sure you take care of the orphans. Make sure that you... Keep the Sabbath holy. Make sure you abstain from work on the Sabbath. Make sure you, you do not dishonor the name of the Lord. And everything that they did was focused on the external. The problem is, is what we've just looked at at the very beginning. Is that when we deal with the external issues, without dealing with the internal issues, creates legalism. And we cannot do until we are changed. On the inside. Our actions, our speech is a result of that which comes on the inside. We cannot keep the law, church. Romans chapter 8 says it like this. He says, The hostile mind, I'm sorry, the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God and cannot obey God's law, for it's not even able to do so. James chapter 2, verse 10 says this For whoever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. Let that sink in for just a moment. Whoever keeps all of the law, the moral law, yet stumbles at one point is guilty of it all. But the good news is, as long as your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you're guaranteed entrance into the kingdom. The problem is, is that we're all guilty. We stand before a holy, just God, guilty. And we think that because God is good and God is gracious and God is loving, that He is going to somehow, that He is going to by His grace and by His mercy saying, that's okay. It's not that big of a deal. But church, it is. He is holy. He is righteous. He is blameless. And His righteousness and His justice is not going to be compromised. Enter Jesus. Verse 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled in me. The beautiful message of the gospel is that God did in Christ what we could not do. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were by nature children of wrath. That we were by nature those who deserved wrath and judgment. 
But God, by the great grace and by the great mercy, sent Jesus to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law on our behalf because we did not have the ability to do so. Because we did not have the the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual ability to do so because we are by nature's sinners. And by nature, we are destined to do that which is wrong. You don't understand this until you have children. Nobody has to teach a child to lie, cheat, or steal. You have to teach a child to obey, to do what's right. Because by nature, we are sinners. We do that which is wrong. David said in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus completely fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And in the same way that God imputed onto Christ our sin, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in the same way that God imputed onto Christ our sin, God took the righteousness of Christ and imputed unto us. Not based upon anything we have done, but based upon only what Christ has done. God made whom him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. This morning, you must be righteous. The only way for you to be righteous is through the righteousness of Jesus. Because church, you can't do it. I can't do it. We're not good enough. Even on our best days, our righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Therefore, we must trust Jesus and Him alone for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, Your Word tells us That Jesus is the righteous fulfillment of the law. That which we could not do in and of ourselves, you did through Jesus. That which was broken by sin, corrupted, perverted because of our sin, You took care of on the cross. We owed a debt that we could not pay. Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. God, I thank you that you perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That if I place my faith and trust in him and in him alone, that my righteousness indeed can surpass that of the Pharisees. Not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus is. If that's your prayer this morning, if for the very first time you realize that you could not be good enough, 
that you needed Jesus to be good enough for you. I want to invite you to come to turn from your sin, turn from your life as a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, and trust Jesus that He may give you His righteousness. There's some of you this morning who've been trying to be good. And this morning you realize that you cannot be what God has called you to be until your heart is changed. Maybe God's calling you to come be a part of what we're doing here at Redeemer. just a few moments we're going to sing a hymn of appeal and as we do may you be obedient may you do business with God here this morning in Jesus name we pray amen